Hey, it's producer Aaron here, and I just want to let you know for the course of the next 40 minutes, it's going to sound a little bit different than what you're used to. This uh, segment originally aired about this time last year on our radio program when we did that. It's a World v. Wednesday episode on the legacy of Thanksgiving. With that in mind, and without further ado, a very happy Thanksgiving on behalf of the day show. Hope you enjoy. I personally believe... Elitism. Marxism. Atheist. Government intervention. Secular humanist. Liberals and conservatives. Materialism. Nihilism. U.S. Americans. Christian. Globalist. Socialist. Democracy. Worldview, as the word suggests, is how we look at the world around us. How do we understand life as it hits us in the face. Libertarian. Tea Partier. The free market. Nobody is without a worldview. The only question is, is it a good one or a bad one? So it becomes the glasses, the spectacles, the filter through which they're actually seeing life. And the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. We are back with Hour 3 of the Steve Dace Radio Program, powered by Conservative Review. Here on the Salem Radio Network, you are listening to Worldview Wednesday, otherwise known as your college philosophy class on the radio. And the good news about doing philosophy this late at night is regardless of where you're at, you're going to be satisfied. Because if you're still listening to the radio this time of night, that either means, A, um, you can't turn your brain off, you're smarter than the average bear, you want to be challenged, that's good, you came to the right place, or it means, B, you just can't get to sleep and you need somebody to put you down. Well, philosophy will make it go nighty-night. So either way, satisfied customers, one and all, here on Thanksgiving Eve, here on the Steve Day Show. And don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Send us your feedback, steve at stevedace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. This week, uh, we're going to talk about the legacy of Thanksgiving. What exactly are we going to be celebrating tomorrow? Almost every American, regardless of race, creed, color, religion, will celebrate Thanksgiving tomorrow. Almost every American really doesn't know the legacy of what they're celebrating, mainly because it's been taken away from us, stolen. I mean, we have witnessed in this last generation what amounts to a cultural hijacking. That's what's taken place. Because if you can take away a civilization's past, then you can grab control of their future especially a civilization started by values, virtues, principles, traditions, notions of pre-existent truth, like the laws of nature and nature's God, transcendence. Remove those things, or at least pretend to, because after all, if they're transcendent and pre-existent, they cannot be removed. But at least pretend to remove those things. And then you give yourself subconscious, or open permission to chart your own path, your own future, find your own highway to hell, no matter how dark the road you're going down really is. Now, this holiday we are celebrating tomorrow is a uniquely American one. 
And it was derived so that we wouldn't find ourselves one day in the shape we currently are. So that we would have a day of thanksgiving, of gratefulness, humility, remembrance of where we come from and how far we've come and how we got here. Yet most of us, and I I count myself in this group, most of us, it's all about what time is the meal coming over. I have seen... Or what time will the, what time's family coming over for the meal? What time are the football games on? And, and I'm guilty of this too. You guys know I'm a big football fan. I, I have seen in my total or my Twitter timeline today, uh, it seems like a hundred tweets to articles about how to talk politics with your family over Thanksgiving. Not nearly as many telling us what Thanksgiving's even about, how we got here. Tonight, I want to change that, or at least hopefully do our part in our little sliver of the broadcasting universe to do something about that. I want to begin by going into our past. The very first Thanksgiving proclamations in American history. I have, I have here in front of me here in the studio the Founder's Bible. If you don't have one of these, you're missing out. It's a tremendous piece of scholarship, work, craftsmanship. It's gorgeous. It is, it's the Bible as you've never seen it before, meaning it's obviously the same Word of God that has been guiding us for the last couple of thousand of years, but it has, it, it, it's been supplemented with how we in our history as a people have applied these truths to our history, our way of life where specifically the words inspired here by Almighty God, our Creator, how they inspired us as a nation. On September 25th, 1789, the very first Federal Congress had just finished framing the Bill of Rights, otherwise known as the capstone of the Constitution. On that notable day, the official records of Congress reported the following, quote, Mr. Elias Boudinot said he could not think of letting the session pass over without offering an opportunity to all the citizens of the United States of joining with one voice in returning to Almighty God their sincere thanks for the many blessings he had poured down upon them. With this view, therefore, he would move the following resolution, resolved, that a joint committee of both houses be directed to wait upon the President of the United States to request that he would recommend to the people of these United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God. Mr. Roger Sherman justified the practice of Thanksgiving on any remarkable event, not only as a laudable one in and of itself, but as warranted by a number of precedents in Holy Writ. For instance, the solemn thanksgivings and rejoicings which took place in the time of Solomon after the building of the temple was a case in point. That's right out of the Bible, Second Chronicles, First Kings. 
this example he thought worthy of a Christian initiation on the present occasion, and he would agree with the gentleman who moved the resolution. Mr. Boudinot quoted further precedents from the practice of the late Congress and hoped the, na- the motion would meet a ready acquiescence. The question was now put on the resolution, and it was carried in the affirmative. That's from the Congressional Record, September 25th, 1789. Congress's recommendation was delivered then to President George Washington, who happily concurred, issuing America's first federal proclamation for a day of prayer and thanksgiving. It declared, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. Now, therefore, I do recommend that we may then all unite in rendering unto Him our sincere and humble thanks for His kind care and protection of the people of this country. And also that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech Him to pardon our national and other transgressions, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue. Notice that Washington said nations, not just individuals, but nations have four duties, to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and to humbly implore His protection and favor. And this proclamation, along with several other calls to prayer he issued in his administration, was written by Washington himself, whereas other presidents had chaplains of Congress write theirs. This is one of just many American practices with a biblical basis. And it just so happens to be one of the very first. But I am sure here on this Thanksgiving Eve, many of you are hearing this for the first time. Well, maybe you have some rudimentary knowledge about some pilgrims on a Mayflower and a risky voyage and a miraculous Indian named Squanto who just so happened to know English and to teach them how to farm the land just so happened to know English and to teach them how to farm the land. That stuff just so happens a world away. It just so happens. But do you know who those pilgrims were? Do you know why they came? Do you really know what they risked? What would possess them to do what they did? Because 500 years or so later, It's exactly why we are here tonight, and we'll discuss it here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. The Bible and the Constitution don't just apply to Democrats. This is Steve Dace.
gave the Thanksgiving message in our church on Sunday. And I'm sure it was unlike any Thanksgiving message anybody has ever heard at our church because it began with a 25-minute cartoon. I figured I, we needed to consult one of America's great historians, Charles Schultz. <laughs> oh, good. So we, I, I played, because we have it in our DVD collection, I played uh, a vintage uh, Peanuts special, which when, I, when you and I were kids, Todd, this aired nationally every year. But it is the Peanuts telling the story of the Pilgrims and how they came here, who they were, and it's real history, the real history. It is very specific that about how, how much of a role their faith was a driving force in what they did and what they risked. And I, I asked our, our lead pastor, Pastor Bob, if we could make an exception for this service and have the children come in from Sunday school to watch this. Because they've probably never heard any of this or seen any of this. Sure. Uh, and, I, and I wanted them to watch it with their parents who, unless they're... My, my Todd and I's age or older have probably never been taught this, would have to go and seek this information out. It was not granted to them. And it was very intriguing to watch their reaction to this and to watch this and understand that this is in the form of a harmless cartoon. It is a watered-down, sanitized version of this history. Yet, if I were a government school teacher in almost any school district in America and I showed this to my children today, they'd threaten my tenure. Mm-hmm. And it's because your culture is being hijacked from you. The legacy of who we are as a people, like the legacy of Thanksgiving, is being taken away from us. Uh, because of copyright, I can't play this on the air. So let me summarize some of this history for you. For nine weeks, nine weeks, The pilgrims lived on this ship, a rickety ship. Halfway through, it nearly fell apart. In fact, it was deteriorating so fast, they debated amongst themselves whether to turn back or not because they were heading now into the most uncharted part of the trip, and they had no idea what the seas would be like. They took their children with them, unsanitary conditions, Food rationing. And when I say unsanitary conditions, now when I say unsanitary conditions in in 2015, what that means is a dude might have to find a tree. A chick might have to find some leaves. Or that's a really disgusting rest stop. Right? Let me tell you what unsanitary conditions means in the early 17th century on a wooden ship. It means not only is there not a bathroom, but good luck having any privacy at all. You're essentially sailing on a latrine because you have all these people there. And people produce waste, and the waste has to go somewhere. And they've got their children themselves. Think about the, the things we don't want to expose our children to. Did they love their children any less? No. They were there because they may have loved their children even more. Why would they risk this? Why would they do this? Nine weeks of this, several of them died. 
when they finally arrived at their destination. So many of them were sick, they couldn't come ashore for many more weeks or months. And the Mayflower was essentially turned into a hospital right there in the port. First place they landed, there was no place to settle. So they had to get back in the ship with all these sick people. And understand, they don't have antibacterial wipes, folks. I mean, this is a test tube for infection and disease. Being, being one of the nurses, one of the women helping the sick, you're taking your own life into your own hands in the early 1600s. It is something we cannot even begin to wrap our minds around. As I sit here tonight in our studio, and what is it, Todd? we got 10 different college basketball games on, football shows, and, and I could turn the channel. We could watch home decor. Can't yeah. even begin to wrap our contemporary Western minds around this. Why? They came from England. That's a great place. What was the issue? The issue was freedom. But a very specific kind. And it goes back to a time before the pilgrims. There was a king named Henry VIII who was disappointed his wife, Catherine of Aragorn, had not provided him a son. And he wanted to divorce her. But the Pope at the time, who himself was not necessarily Mr. Ethical, he had already granted divorces. He shouldn't have granted. Annulments is what they called them at the time. Although it's hard to call it an annulment when you have children. At this point, however, because of Catherine's social standing, the Pope said no, no more. And angry the Henry VIII, rather than being loyal to his wife, decided to start his own church. Where he would have control. The government would have control over the church. What it taught. Who got to teach it? And to whom? It became known as the Church of England. Some of you know it today as the Anglican Church. This is where it came from. Entirely a creation from the, from the bowels of Henry VIII, his own imagination, a church in his image. Fast forward a century or so, and I can, I, I'm sure no one is shocked to learn a church created by a corrupt government official in and of itself. So it has no transcendent meaning, no transcendent calling. Doesn't trace its lineage back to a prophet or an apostle or even a Messiah. Traces its lineage back to what amounts to the most powerful bureaucrat in the court in the British in the British realm. That's that's their that's no transcendence there. Nothing prophetic or sacred there. It was extremely corrupted by the time we get to the pilgrims, who were originally called Puritans. Why were they called Puritans? We will explain next. You're listening to Steve Dace.
Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. This is Steve Dace. And this is Worldview Wednesday, the legacy of Thanksgiving. This week's college philosophy class on the radio. So if you want to know why the Pilgrims got on that rickety ship, you've got to know the history that led to that point. Henry VIII wants to divorce his wife, a powerful figure in Europe's, in, uh, in, in Europe's hierarchy because she hasn't provided him a son. Not to mention, uh, she was a very popular figure as well, a woman that was known for being quite graceful and beloved by the people of England. So he couldn't taint her. Uh, he couldn't cast her aside. He asked the Pope for another annulment. The Pope said no more. So he created his own church that would give him what he wanted when he wanted it. And of course, when a man, even with as much power as, the, as Henry VIII had, detaches himself from that level of accountability, what happens next? Well, now we get to the period where Henry VIII starts murdering his own wives. Starting with Anne Boleyn, who he left Catherine of Aragorn for. Creates his own church to tell him what he wants to hear when he wants to hear it, essentially. Church starts out Catholic. In fact, he is, he is given, this is the time of the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic and Protestant wars. He is even given award, an award. Henry VIII is given an award from Rome, defender of the faith against the Protestants. Ends up completely going the other way siding with the Protestants, burning Sir Thomas More at the stake, one of the great Catholic thinkers of the age. And then later on, turning, when the Protestant Revolution says, hey, we're going to take the words of these scriptures seriously, a whole sola scriptura thing, which means, by the way, we have no king but Jesus. You, guys, you can't tell us, Henry VIII, what to say or think. We didn't want the Pope telling us what to think. And, we, and, and he was a religious figure. He actually had some street cred, and we weren't going to let, listen, let him boss us around. You think we're going to let some bureaucrat with not, doesn't even have a Pope, a papal legacy behind him tell us what to do? And all of a sudden, the man who was once the favorite son of the Protestant Reformation starts giving the Protestants the Sir Thomas More treatment. This is the church legacy of the Puritans. The Bible, of course, is the greatest bestseller of all time. Do you know what number two is? A book written by a man who is imprisoned. Wrote, a, wrote this book on walls with rocks and sticks. Called it Pilgrim's Progress. It was written by John Bunyan. Why was he in prison? Because the King of England, a successor to Henry VIII, demanded that the Protestant pastors license their sermons get a license to preach, he refused. Lost everything he owned and was thrown in prison as a result. This is why the Puritans, the pilgrims, got on that ship. They originally tried to purify the Church of England. And then it didn't take long to find out the people running the Church of England were just perfectly fine with its level of corruption. In fact, they were making serious bank out of it. They recalled the words of their Savior who said, you cannot pour new wine into old wineskins. So the Puritans became separatists. This has pretty much been the history of God's people, by the way. We, I'm not mentioning any names. Probably, probably uh, you know, uh, GOP. Uh, throw this uh, out there to some particular you know, institutions that have gone rogue and corrupt. But, but typically how it works for God's people is we will try to reform a corrupted structure from within, find out soon that doesn't work, the people running it like the corruption, and we'll just leave and form our own. 
right? This is typically what happens. And this is why they got on that ship. They risked everything they had to get on that ship. And while they were there, when they arrived, when they were in port, they recognized they needed to govern themselves. Now, here's the thing. Not everybody on that ship was a Puritan. Several of the people were not. There were believers and unbelievers alike. Most of the crew were unbelievers, for example. So here we are in a new world. Believer and unbeliever alike has to work together. Their shared survival depends on it. There's some different value systems at play here. But they've got to figure out how are they going to exist together. And, and what will be the code by which they will govern themselves? What will be the agreed upon value system that they will hold one another accountable to? And what they concocted, what they constructed, became the first official governing document in the history of these United States. And the inspiration for every one of the governing documents in our nation's founding that would come later. It's not very long. It's only two paragraphs. It's called the Mayflower Compact. And inside the Mayflower Compact are five principles that are unique and vital to the founding and making of America. You're listening to Steve Dace. have to have all the answers but you do have to know where to find them the steve day show back here on worldview wednesday the legacy of thanksgiving 200 words started america oh these united states became free and independent states on july 4th 1776 but you got to go back 150 years before that to these 200 words that are the source of of the founding of this country, the Mayflower Compact. It begins with, in the name of God, amen. So the purpose is stated right from the beginning. In the name of God, amen, we whose names are underwritten, though loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, as in the King James Bible, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., those words are key. I will explain why in a moment. Having undertaken, meaning we got on this boat for this reason, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Those are the first few sentences of the Mayflower Compact. And honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and of one another, covenant and combine ourselves together, into a civil body politic. Here's a group of religionists whose first act when they finally reach their destination is to create a political pact. 
So much for religion and politics don't mix. <laughs> for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony. The general good of the colony. By the way, this is where the general welfare clause your constitution comes right out of the Mayflower Compact right here. Unto which we promise all due submission and obedience, in witness whereof we have hereunder subscribed our names at Cape Cod, the 11th of November, in the year of the reign of our sovereign Lord, King James of England, France, and Ireland, the 18th, and of Scotland, the 54th, 1620. In this document, 200 words, are five principles that are the legacy of thanksgiving, that this nation is going to need us to stand for if we're going to preserve the blessings and favor God has granted this nation for future generations. Here they are. Number one, there is no law higher than God's law, and any human law that seeks to undermine God's law is no law at all. Boy, that is apropos for the day and age in which you live right now. They got on that ship and risked everything because the king said, I am God, not God. When I speak, I speak in effect for God. I can make you say things, believe things, do things that God says is wrong. And these pilgrims believe that to be so vile, so evil, so wicked. They risked even their own children for nine weeks on a rickety boat to get away from it. There is no law higher than God's law. Any human law that seeks to undermine God's law is no law at all. That is principle number one in that compact. Principle number two, we are to respect human governing authority, but we do not worship it. Note they give respect and reverence to the king, whom they are, by the way, rebelling from. All right. So how do you justify that? How do you reconcile that? Because he is the king. He is their sovereign, their dread, meaning they are to revere, to fear him until he becomes what? Ungodly. Ungodly until he claims, I'm not just your king, I'm the king of kings. Because no, that's not the way it works. That's why every politician before they've assumed their office in the history of this republic have taken an oath, Almighty God, a remembrance of who really is in charge, that yes, with this office, the trappings of which will come power, but the real power that you will be accountable to is your creator. And you cannot claim his power for yourself. And we will honor you, we will obey you, revere you, until you ask for that which God says you cannot have, or you command that which God says is wrong. And then the answer is no. Which leads us to principle number three. A government that claims it speaks on behalf of God or seeks to replace God's word with its own is to be disobeyed. That government is to be disobeyed. You are not to obey. But the courts say, Steve. Then you are not to obey. The courts are wrong, as was the court of King James. It was wrong, too. And if you can't disobey one federal judge with no power, then you look those pilgrims in the eye 
who took their little babies on that ship so that you would have the choice that you have whether or not to obey today. Had they not done so, you would have not even that choice that you have now. Principle number four, God's law blesses the believer and the unbeliever alike. There were believers and unbelievers on that ship. Now, what do I mean by God's law? Do I mean like every law in the Levitical code? Some will claim that. That is not what I mean. In fact, they had this very debate in the New Testament. They were going to all these Gentile lands now, and all the early Christians were all Jews. They were all circumcised, all ate by the Jewish dietary traditions. Well, what do they do with all these Greeks and Romans who are not circumcised? Who, who volunteers to be the deacon who circumcises all these middle-aged grown men? Anybody? Anybody up for that one? Who wants that? Nobody volunteered for that. All right? So we're going to circumcise all these, uh, all these Europeans? We're going to do that? All these Romans? All these Greeks? We're going to make them eat the way we do? And so they had an enclave, a council. And after days of debate and prayer, they decided, hey, some laws in the Old Testament are ceremonial. Some are civic, meant they were meant for the nation of Israel at that time. And then there is the moral law, which is the transcendent law. Don't murder, don't kill, don't covet, don't steal. That is the transcendent moral law. And that is the law that is the basis for all of the civic laws that founded this country. That's the law we're talking about. That law, those Ten Commandments, it blesses the believer and the unbeliever alike. And we have witnessed this in our own history. For 200 and almost 40 years, we have seen this. Believer and unbeliever alike was blessed for recognizing and obeying the laws of nature and nature's God. Which leads us to the fifth principle. And we'll conclude this week's Worldview Wednesday with that next. Listening to Steve Dace. If you're part of the problem, don't bother getting out of the way. Stay right there, and we'll run over you. This is Steve Dace. Five principles from the Mayflower Compact that are required of us today to know and to honor and do if we're going to preserve American exceptionalism for future generations. Number one, there is no law higher than God's moral law. And any human law that seeks to undermine that is no law at all. Number two, we are to respect governing authority, but we do not worship it. When it asks us our allegiance, we are to say no. Because a government that claims it speaks on behalf of God or seeks to replace God's word with its own is to be disobeyed. That's principle number three. And that principle number four, then, is that God's moral law blesses the believer and the unbeliever alike. Those laws of nature and nature's God that founded the country. Which takes us now to the future. And linking the, 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 our history with the future. Principle number five. This nation was founded by Christians who believed in the Word of God and who sought to establish a civil society according to it. And it will only be preserved if believers today live out the same courage of conviction as our forefathers. Otherwise, it will be lost to history. 
Otherwise, it will be lost to history. We will be the generation Reagan warned us about. The ones whom one day will have to sit and explain to their grandchildren what it was once like in these United States when people were free. That is the challenge to us today. This is the legacy we are fighting for today. And the day has now arrived when the same persecutions that threaten our ancestors, which they came here to escape, they've come to our land as we speak. We already see the warning signs of what's to come. It always begins this way. Always. That is the legacy of Thanksgiving. That's why we're giving thanks. That previous attempts in human history to inspire freedom and liberty that were thwarted and failed succeeded here. And they succeeded here not because we wanted it more than other human beings wanted it. Or we are a, our, our founding fathers are just a better class of Homo sapien. But because of the providence of God, because they invoked the providence of God. And that we are to have days of remembrance, days of thanks, to remember that without that providence, we have no hope. That is the legacy to celebrate tomorrow. Happy Thanksgiving. John 317. You're listening to Steve Dace.